Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, December the 30th, 2022. The die is pretty much set, I think. I'm Tempting fake, but the die is pretty much set on 2022. The year is coming to an end. It's been quite a year, although I think all years are quite a years, uh, certainly in retrospect, especially if you live through them. Um, one of the dominant, if not the dominant, certainly domestic American story of this year in political terms is what's happened to the Republican Party. And it seems to me as if there are there are two readings of, of what's happened to the Republican Party. The first, uh, excuse me, the first is that, uh, and, and this I think is reflected by former Republicans like Pete Weiner, who's been on the show and actually was on the show earlier this year. The first is that Aliens in some way or form have got hold of the Republican Party. Weiner worked in the two Bush administrations and the Reagan administration. He's become a very prominent critic of Donald Trump and of Trumpism. He's the author of The Death of Politics, and uh, which has the subtitle How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. The, the, the Weiner camp seems to suggest that something has gone profoundly wrong with the Republican Party. Uh, that it's caught this terrible fever with Trump and after Trump. Um, this is also reflected, I think, in the work of other American journalists like Robert Draper, who was on the show earlier this year. He has a new book out, Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. And people like Draper seem to suggest that the Republican Party lost its mind quite recently and quite quickly. Others, like Dana Milbank, the Washington Post um, columnist, are kind of in their camp. He has a new book out, and he's been on the show, The Destructionists, the 25-year crack-up of the Republican Party. But even Milbank seems to suggest that this crack-up has come quite quickly. Um, Milbank and Weiner and Draper are all journalists rather than historians, although they all have a, a sophisticated historical take. And I think the other camp is a more historical one, which suggests that this has been a long time coming and is rooted in structural forces in American history over the last 50 years. I think this has been particularly represented by Kevin Boyle, a historian at Northwestern University uh, and the author of uh, an important new book, The Shattering America in the 1960s. Uh, I invited Kevin back on the show today to talk about 2022 and perhaps the breakup of the uh, the breakup of the uh, the the Republican Party and, and, and present this split. Kevin, do you think it's a fair way of compartmentalizing thinking about the Republicans that all this is a, a contemporary crisis, maybe caused by Donald Trump, whereas people like yourself see what you call the shattering in a much longer term context? Yeah, I think it's a really smart way of thinking about it, Andrew. And I but I do think that there, those two sides that you were really nicely laying out aren't incompatible. It's just a matter of how you want to contextualize 
that school that says something dramatic has happened in recent years. And the question really is, is that, because I agree with that. I think that something has really dramatic has happened in recent years to the Republican Party, but it happened because the foundation for that transformation was laid over the previous two generations, really, of American political life. So is Donald Trump the equivalent of Richard Nixon? No, but Donald Trump wouldn't be possible without some of the transformations that politicians like Richard Nixon put into place now 50 years ago. Kevin, people have often used the metaphor of a fever affecting the Republican Party um, in the same way as perhaps McCarthyism affected the Republicans in particular, but also the Democrats in the 1950s. Um, if it is a fever, is 2022 when the fever reached its pitch or when it began to pass, do you think? I think it depends whether you're an optimist or a pessimist. I happen to be an optimist, so I think, though, if we talk again this time next year, I may reserve, I'll reserve the right to completely change my mind. Well, we certainly will, Kevin. <laughs> I like having you on the show. So It does feel to me as if the fever, if we want to go with that term, has started to break a bit. And I wouldn't have said that even halfway through this year, because there was so much that happened in the first half of this year that seemed to be a piece of that feverish um, politics. But the last few months have felt as if, and I think the midterm elections were a really good example of this, as if maybe the American people as a whole, certainly not all Americans, but the American people as a whole have finally just sort of tired of this sort of politics, this kind of caustic, toxic politics. And that by tiring of that, the appeal of it just starts to feel as if it's crumbling. It's interesting. When I had Pete Weiner on the show, I call him the, the soul, I think, of American cult, uh, co um, uh, not con communism, the soul of American conservatism or the, the conscience of American conservatism, even if he's no longer a member of the Republican Party. I said to him, um, Pete, you know, you were, he, he's presenting Trump as something different, as something foreign to his principles of republicanism. And I said, well, you worked in the Republic, in, 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 the Reagan and the two Bush administrations, and they were guilty at, at times of uh, dog whistling, of implicit racism and other forms of, shall we call it, white class warfare. Yeah. Um, how do you interpret this narrative between Nixon and Trump? Is it a continual narrative? Or, or does it, with one of the Bushes or both of the Bushes, does it sort of disappear and then reappear? No, it's a continual narrative. It's not the, like any good story or compelling story, I think is a better way of putting it. Like any compelling story, it changes over time. It's not as if there's a kind of perfect parallel between what Richard Nixon was doing or Ronald Reagan was doing or the first George Bush or the second George Bush, especially the first George Bush were doing on racial questions. But Andrew, what you just said is exactly right, that the... Republican Party embraced a sort of um, dog whistle politics in the 1960s and 
that grew stronger and stronger, that appeal, that powerful appeal grew stronger and stronger throughout the Reagan years, throughout the Bush years. You know, it's important to remember that Ronald Reagan launched his campaign for the presidency after he got the Republican nomination in 1980, going to the county where three civil rights workers had been murdered in 1964 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, going to the county fair there to talk about states' rights. That's as obvious a racial appeal as you can possibly get. It's important to remember that the first George Bush ran the Willie, the Willie Horton ads as a way of undermining Michael Dukakis in 1988. That's dog whistle politics of the most blatant form. So it's not as if what Donald Trump was doing with the birther movement didn't have precedence inside the, Demo inside the Republican Party. It clearly did. Now, his version of that politics tended to be really crude. And there are other areas of dog whistle politics that Donald Trump pursued that were equally crude, class politics, in a way that Ronald Reagan would never have done. But it's not as if there is suddenly a break when you get to Donald Trump. He was building on generations of politics. I wonder, Kevin, why the fever, if you're right, and I tend to agree with you, and I'm not sure I'm necessarily an optimist, why the fever is broken. I wonder one reason might be that this year in particular, Trump made it clear, it seems, that he was against democracy. Yeah. But he, he, he no longer did dog whistling. I mean, that was always part of his act. But that was never, in 2022, that's not the heart of his message. His, the heart of his message is that he wants, if he comes back to power, he'll eliminate democracy. He's made that fairly clear. It doesn't seem to me, and you're the historian here, so maybe you can correct me, that even Nixon, at his worst, at his darkest moment, ever said, well, I'm going to get rid of democracy. It's bad. It's un-American. Yeah. That is absolutely right. Richard Nixon, it feels a very strange thing to say for a man who committed any number of crimes while president of the United States. Um, but Richard Nixon fundamentally believed in the system. He fundamentally believed in that democratic system. That's why he resigned, because he understood that the system was going to expel him. He was going to get um, thrown out of office. He was going to get removed from office. The Republican Party of that time believed in the system. That's why he knew that he was going to be impeached and removed from office, because the Republican Party leadership told him that. The congressional leadership told him that. They believed in this system at a basic level. Did they commit, did Richard Nixon commit crimes in office? He absolutely committed crimes in office, but he believed in the system fundamentally in a way that Trump simply does not. And one of the terrifying things of the aftermath of the 2020 election now that we're seeing so much more detail on as the January 6th commission material comes out, one of the really terrifying things is not simply that Donald Trump didn't believe in democracy, though I absolutely agree with you on that, but that there were so many people willing to help him subvert the democratic process. There were so many people willing to play on his prejudices, his profound emotional problems in, to exploit his weaknesses and to support 
that push against democracy. And I guess maybe that's where my peculiarly my optimism comes from, is that it feels as if that coterie of people, everyone from Rudy Giuliani at the top to the rioters at the Capitol on January 6th, that has reached its limit. And the wider sphere of Americans have now said, to some way or another, enough is enough. It's interesting you bring up January 6th. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Garrett Graff's new book on um, Watergate, uh, A New History. It's a really interesting book. He's an important writer. He's not an academic, more of a journalist. Uh, but he came on the show earlier this year comparing Watergate and January 6th and suggesting that both Nixon and Trump shared a, a paranoia and isolation from the outside world. Would you separate then Watergate and January 6th? We've done a number of shows on, on Watergate. And in fact, had a conversation earlier this, this week with the son of a man who went to jail over Watergate. So it's an interesting and still remainingly contemporary subject. Yeah. Now, Watergate is an absolutely compelling topic, and but it is not the same as January 6th. There's just fundamental differences between the two of them. Watergate, at its heart, was driven by a paranoid president. Yeah, absolutely. Richard Nixon had a deep paranoia. It's not the same emotional um, and psychological makeup of a Donald Trump, I don't think. But yes, it was driven by his paranoia. It was driven by his sense that he was constantly being threatened by outside forces. That's what led to the Watergate break-in. And then, of course, the driving force of that case was really the attempt, this really quite clumsy attempt by the Richard Nixon and those immediately around him to cover up this trail of criminal behavior that the administration had engaged in. And I try, when I teach about Watergate, I really try to impress on students how serious an issue it really was. Students have a tendency over the years, they've had a tendency to think of Watergate as, well, everybody does this sort of stuff. Well, no, they didn't. But the scale of that just doesn't compare to what happened in January 6th. It's an obvious thing to say. But Donald Trump's fundamental goal, as you just said, was to overthrow the election to overthrow the most important democratic process we have in this country. His goal was to subvert the democratic process. And that's a scale of offense so much greater than the very serious offenses that ran through Watergate. Do you think when um, intellectuals and historians look back at 2022, for that reason, the January 6th hearings will be very pertinent, that they won't just be footnotes. Do you think that the work of Liz Cheney in particular ha has great significance for historians and indeed for American, for the American Republic? Yeah, I really do. I don't know if future historians will make Jan the January 6th committee central to the textbooks. Is that what the students of 40 years from now will be reading about? But I do think that what the committee did was it insisted that in public opinion that there had to be accountability for what happened that it wasn't enough to say oh it was just kind of things got out of hand as some republicans have tried to say it's not enough to simply say 
that emotions ran high, that this was that what happened on January 6th was part of a long, months long effort to overthrow that election. And that what the January 6th committee said is, here are the facts of that. You have to confront it. You have to face facts. And if there's one thing that's happened in American public life in the last five, six years, it's the stunning ability of politicians to say, no, you don't need facts. Well, what the January 6th committee said is, here are the facts. And that's what the power of that committee was. It was about demanding accountability. Will that result in a prosecution? I don't know. But in some ways, the critical thing was simply saying, we have to face the truth of what happened. And that's what the committee did. It forced people to confront the truth of that, of those weeks after the 2020 election. Using your antennae of a distinguished historian, Kevin, what are we going to remember about 2022? Is it getting back to normal with Joe Biden? Or is Joe Biden a trick? Does it appear as if we're getting back to normal? And actually, the final act is still to come. Is it like watching Carrie or something, and at the end, the hand reaches out from the grave? The things <laughs> to get a lot worse. Are we, are we being lulled into a false sense of complacency? I think that's the big question for 2022 and for 2023. I think we're at an inflection point. I think it's the, the possibility now exists for us to turn away from, to some degree, to turn away from the toxic life that this country has been living now for five or six years. I think that possibility now exists in a way that I don't think I would have said at the end of 2021. But it's a possibility. It's not a sure thing. And I think that's going to be the question for 2023 is, are we now on the road to restoring the fundamental truths of this nation or are we not? I don't know yet. Your book talks about the, the small town paranoia that Richard Nixon brought to America and sort of peddled as a recipe for political success. But this occurred before Reagan, it's always uh, not Reagan. Sorry, whoops. Uh, uh, Nixon. This has always been a feature of, of American life. The the anger, in particular, of, of a white working class. How would you mm -hmm. respond to a critique of your argument that you may be right about the last fifty years, but you forgot about the fifty or a hundred years before <laughs> the night? <laughs> yeah, that's gonna. That's a great question. It's kind of the dilemma of historians, right? Where does a story start? Right, that you can trace a story back um, very, very far, or you draw boundary lines. Um, I wouldn't disagree with people who argue that the 1960s emerges out of a long history. It's actually one of the trickiest parts about writing that book was that I was trying really hard to argue, in fact, that the 60s has obvious roots too. Um, so I guess what I'd say is I don't disagree with that. I think that there are moments in the American past where the power of um, the political power of kind of white supremacy, which is always there, peaks. Um, there are moments where America's xenophobia peaks, where it suddenly bursts into um, the top of American political life. We're living in, we were, I hope, 
um, to say, put it in the past, we were living in one of those moments. Maybe we still are. And I think and some maybe it will always be. Uh, Kevin, yeah. we, we've done a number of shows on the white working class movement, one with David Paul Kuhn. Uh, he has a book out, The Hard Hat Riot, mm -hmm. which is also, I think, central in your narrative. It seems as if there are two ways of thinking about um, white working class radicalism. The first is with someone like Michael Lind, um, who the historian who argues that the problem isn't with the angry white working class. The problem is that the angry white working class are angry with the wrong people and that they need to ally with the angry black working class and then you'll have a genuine populist movement. The other reading of the angry white working class is we need to make them more angry, put them in the suburbs, give them a couple of cars and a chicken in their part and they'll calm down. How do you see the fate of the angry white working class, the, the people who voted for Trump in America? How do we take the sting out of their tail? Do we, hmm. do we, do we bottle their political anger and redirect it? Or do we try and calm them down? I think, first of all, I think the first step that I want to really stress is that not all of the white working class um, fits that yeah, no, I know, and I, and I apologize. I'm not trying to suggest that. No, no, I realize you're not. I guess all I really want to stress is the key word in that phrase is angry. Because there's a segment of the white working class that doesn't share the Trumpist policy, policy at all. I think that what progressive politics needs to do and it's a really tricky thing to do. But what it needs to do is it needs to be able to say, and there are politicians who are very good at this, not many, able to say, look, this country can address the serious issues that you as a working person face. The loss of jobs, the decline in manufacturing that has led to a decline in working standards, the drop in life expectancy, that yeah. we can improve those circumstances, but we need to do it alongside addressing problems of people who aren't like you. I, it, I don't think the answer to progressive, the progressive dilemma of the white, the angry white working class is to say, we need to find a politics that is purely going to address their needs because we've been pandering too much to other people. We haven't. We need to be able to say, progressives need to be able to say to the angry white working class, yeah, you've got real problems. You have real issues that need to be addressed. And the way to address them is not through venting your anger at people of color, not with this kind of venomous politics of paranoia, but by seeing your fate tied with people who aren't like you. Because that is, in some fundamental ways, the really great promise of this nation, is that this nation actually can exist by tying, by people willingly tying their fate to people who don't look like them. We don't do that very often in this country. We don't do it very effectively. But that's the promise that politicians need to try to find ways to actually fulfill. It's part of the problem that in that sense, Kevin, in 2022 and before the problem of the 
Democratic Party, of its focus on race and on cultural identity, which implicitly or otherwise excludes, and, and I'll take out the angry bit, the white working class out of the party. There seems to be a huge demographic shift within American politics. Yeah, I don't think that, I guess what I'm trying to suggest is that a politics that deals with the very serious, very profound problem of race in this country is not inherently a politics that can't deal with questions of class, that can't deal with questions of economic injustice, that those are in fact inextricably linked. And the mistake I think that progressives often make is to imagine they're not, that to deal with the politics of race is somehow to not deal with the problems of class. Now, not all progressive politicians believe that, but too often they tend to think of these as exclusive categories when in fact they're not, they're connected to each other. It's what someone like Martin Luther King always understood, that it wasn't simply a matter of solving the race issue, it's understanding the ways in which race and class and gender and ethnicity intersect with each other. And to try to shape a politics that can do that. Who gets this, Kevin, in America, either within the Republican or the Democratic Party? And, and how can we amplify their voice, their ideas, their writing in 2023 and onward? I'll tell you the politician who I actually um, find really does have a remarkable ability to do exactly what I'm talking about is um, the senator from a state that I lived in for a good number of years, Sherrod Brown, the senator from Ohio. Here is someone who can talk in an honest, straightforward way about questions of class that who has a very solid basis support in the white working class of Ohio, a state that has trended dramatically to the right and he gets reelected easily um, the last time he ran for election, but who also speaks directly to questions of racial justice, of questions of gender rights, who doesn't see those things as exclusive. I think that's the politics um, that holds the most promise for progressive Americans. And how much do you fear DeSantis? Um, lots have been Lots has yeah. been written about him. Some people, a lot of people have come on the show saying that they think he'll probably fizzle, that he doesn't have the political skills. Uh, but clearly he's the flavor of the month within the Republican Party. And he seems to reflect your shattering. He's the next chapter in your book, isn't yeah, he? Is. If, he, if he does indeed come to power, because he doesn't even have a cult of personality like Trump. He just focuses on the culture wars. Yeah, I think that that's a, I don't follow, I don't know enough about the politics of, um, of DeSantis' performance as a politician, but I do fear very much that he's the opposite of what I'm describing, that he's the, he's a very smart guy who seems to understand how to play the politics of cultural division um, in a really very powerful way. And it, that's the exact opposite of the politics that I'm describing, to play to people's fears, to play to people's prejudices, to play to the differences among Americans. That's the, and so, you know, I think people think of DeSantis as 
following a Trumpist politics, but with more sophistication than Donald Trump ever managed. I mean, one of the great saving graces is hardly an original thought. I realize this. Um, one of the great saving graces of Donald Trump in some ways is gross incompetence. And I don't think that DeSantis has that level of incompetence, but he's playing to much the same politics. Whether he has staying power inside the Republican Party, I don't know, because I don't know what the Republican Party is. It seems to be pulling in all sorts of different directions. I don't think anybody knows what the Republican Party is, and it has incredibly dangerous tendencies of self-destruction operating inside it at the moment. So will he be a lasting figure? I don't know. But he is definitely bringing a level of political sophistication to the politics of division that Donald Trump simply didn't couldn't manage. Well, let's end where we began with the Republican Party. You're clearly no great fan of Ron DeSantis. Are, <laughs> no, there, are there forces, individuals, ideas within the Republican Party that can slay the demon of the shattering that you write about that can allow us to begin again? that can get us beyond the culture wars of the 60s? I think that's a great question. I think that right now, the great problem the Republican Party has is that voices like um, Liz Cheney's have been driven out of the party. That the people who want to call for a more principled version of conservatism, one that is based on a coherent set of ideas, largely economic ideas, ideas that I obviously do not share, but that have a kind of intellectual coherence and a, a kind of moral center to them, have lost control of that party. So Mitch McConnell is certainly not a Donald Trump, but there's also no real core of ideological commitment there. It's about political power. Kevin McCarthy, God knows uh, what's at the core of Kevin McCarthy's politics. I don't. Well, think that's he... interesting. I, I talked to the historian of neoliberalism, Gary Gerstle, yesterday, and he seems yeah. to think that McConnell is still pretty much of a uh, a pure neoliberal. So well, so I'm a great admirer of Gary's, um, uh, but where I would disagree is that he may well feel that, Mitch McConnell that is, feel a commitment to neoliberalism, but his he is willing to compromise with other wings of the party, or maybe depending on how you want to read them, exploit other wings of the party in order to advance that agenda. So yes, he now has created a Supreme Court that is very much committed to corporate rights but it's also committed to a whole host of other things that are not neoliberal politics. 